0: Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It: Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast. I am the editor of Profit and Loss Game Stops, and with me also is our managing editor and resident oracle, Colin Lambert. Now, Colin, you uh, you had some comments on uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular last week. I believe it was something along the lines of, "Why on earth is it at nine thousand? The only way from here is down. I don't see why it's this high." So, talk us through, for those who maybe haven't been paying attention, what happened with Bitcoin in the last week. I I didn't notice. Did anything happen to Bitcoin? Let me have a quick look. Ah.
1: Well, okay. I don't know why I bothered doing this to myself. Yeah, so I did turn around and say, I mean, and and I kind of still want my questions answered. So, I'm, you know, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, always certain, but... I basically said that, why is Bitcoin at $9,500? Because the announcement of Facebook's Libra, and you made the point that it would give credibility to cryptocurrencies, and that could be why people are buying it. But I sort of saw it and went, well, why would you use Bitcoin when you can use a stable coin from Facebook? that has got a lot more coverage. Well, you know, it's got firm assets behind it. Why is Bitcoin at $9,500? should be lower. Um, I think on... Wednesday in Sydney time it hit thirteen thousand dollars. So yep. by my by my rough calculations that's only fifty percent higher. So um yeah.
0: Uh, my only a gentlemanly fifty percent increase. A
1: gentlemanly fifty percent. My stop loss is at fifty two percent. Um what I would say though actually, is that since then it's done it i mean you know I tweeted yesterday, you know it's back, and there's a chart of Bitcoin just <laughs> zooming around all over the place, and I notice today it's down below eleven thousand dollars so it's, it's I think we're back to where we were it's you know bitcoin's back, back, back baby um in terms <laughs> of volatility um
0: yeah yeah, what can I say? It wouldn't be the first disastrous call I've ever made. You know, so, so but speaking about the, the price action of Bitcoin, do you know what I find hilarious about this whole thing, right? Which was, yeah. um, you know, 2017. The, the price is roaring upwards, and all the sceptics are going, "Oh, it's all a load of nonsense. This is a rubbish made-up asset. It's never going anywhere." And Then, as it carried going on and on in 2017, those people got quieter and quieter and quieter, right? Then becomes yeah. the bubble burst in 2000 and at the end of 2017, and in 2018, when we had that bear market, all those people who had gone quiet came back around, being like, see, I told you so, look at it, it's never going anywhere. Meanwhile, all the crypto people spent all of last year and the very beginning of this year telling me and everyone who would listen, oh, it doesn't even matter about the price action, we're not here for the price action, this is a long-term play, You know, the, the, the price action doesn't determine mm. the, the mainstream adoption, that's not even what we're looking at. And as soon as it starts screaming to the upside again, all I'm getting is texts from people and WhatsApps from people in the crypto world, being like, like it's back, we're over the, we're over the hump, heading towards twenty thousand now. <laughs> like, like, you literally just spent the last like year telling me how like don't care too much about the price action because you were like you know building for a sustainable future and all of this stuff, right? But as soon as it's going mm. your way again, that all goes out the window. All you want to talk about is is look, it's going up, up, up.
1: All I can say is I think it's the ultimate definition of a retail market. It's an absolute herd instinct. There's not yeah. a great deal of science goes into it. All it needs is a push in one direction, and they've got their they've got their reasons ready. Yeah, I mean to your point there about you know it is coming back and and um, it's a stable long term investment. Is it? Surely something by Facebook would be more long term a long term stable investment, you know, given that it was a you know,
0: stable coin um backed by real they're, assets. They're, so those people when they say it's a stable long term investment, they're talking about kind of the crypto space more broadly yeah. in terms okay, of right. be, yeah. uh, a long term play. Um but I, I certainly agree with the herd mentality and, and I but the other thing that's been hilarious is I've heard a few different views. I've heard a couple of people who have been like very much like this is herd mentality they were like, We still believe in this space and we still believe it it it's got more to go but like they're like I'm very wary at this point. This is it's it's too much too quickly, I don't I'm it makes me nervous and yeah. I'm not really that into it. But I've spoken to one Well it kinda shows
1: Yeah, So it kinda of shows a lack of liquidity as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Definitely.
0: Um, and then I've spoken to one or two people who are just like, oh, this feels so much more sustainable than 2017. You know, there's real money behind it this time. I can, you know, we, we're seeing a difference. And I'm I'm skeptical on that viewpoint. We're
1: seeing a difference, yeah. It's just done 50% in one week. Actually, to be fair, technically, I think it's done, th- uh, that's, that. I'm, I'm exaggerating, I think it was 38%. So that's fine. That's perfectly stable. 38% up in one week. And, well, what are we? I think we're about 10,900 at the moment, so underneath 11,000. So we've just managed to retrace 20% of that. All in one week. Perfectly stable. <laughs> yeah. Much different to last. This is totally different to last time. I know. So in much fact, more this is totally different to last time because the percentage moves, I think, are double what we were seeing in 2016-17. It was just an insane week in Bitcoin. It's brilliant. Um, Something that also struck me on this thing is that um, the Libra announcement was given as the reason why everyone went, great, let's go buy Bitcoin. And since the Libra announcement, and this is a point we raised in last week's podcast, the authorities have been somewhat less than enthusiastic in welcoming the announcement. I think is how I'd put it. I think you've had two yeah. European central bankers, the, You know, Mark Carney at the Bank of England, the FSB, which is a central bank, also the G20 um, regulatory you know, body, for want of a better word. Um, they've all come out saying, no, oh, no, no, we need to look at this very carefully and make sure it's running the right way. That, to me, smacks of
0: regulation. Yeah, so we, we kind of talked about this, I think, very briefly last week, and I, I explored it in more depth in my opinion piece that we, we referenced extensively last week, which is, you know, let's say this gets some real traction, Libra. The central banks, governments, and authorities of the world are probably not going to feel that comfortable about the rise of a, a global international currency trading against their own that has a, an effective central bank consisting of Spotify and Uber and Lyft and Facebook, right? That's And ultimately, right, those... If it really took off, that would have the ability to impact their currencies potentially. Mm. Um, oh yeah, so, I mean, and yeah, they're trying to launch their own digital
1: currencies as well, which I thought was just contactless payments. But there you go. Yeah,
0: yeah. so I think I think definitely the the regulatory angle there's huge. Let's be honest, Bitcoin in the crypto space. I mean, for like the last couple of years almost, right? There were always these rumors that Amazon or Facebook or one of the biggies. Even if it was just like an internal coin, like a JP Morgan style coin, right? There were always rumors that they were going to do that, and every time that one of those rumors surfaced, you'd see a little jump up in in the crypto market yeah. because yeah. lots of people were just waiting. Everyone was saying, you know, once you know, once Amazon, for example, starts accepting Bitcoin as a payment mechanism, right, that's going to be the the thing that tips it over to the next level of growth, et cetera. So I think I think quite a bit of yeah, a lot of people are
1: waiting for this. Yeah, I've got one problem with that, though, mean, And that is, uh, yeah, when I go and buy my $30 gizmo on Amazon and pay with Bitcoin, um, it's the fact it's going to cost me another 30 bucks in transaction cost. Bitcoin is still not effectively a good currency to use. It's not a good exchange of value still. It's an investment. It's ter- I, I still tend to look at it as like more like a, um, a commodity, like a gold.
0: No, it's it, it, it's it's not a good store of value, and therefore it's a terrible mechanism of payment. But that doesn't change the fact that if um, the people were the belief was in the market that if one of the biggies like that comes in and starts accepting it, right, even if it like doesn't isn't the most effective yeah. method, right? That will fundamentally boost boost usage, boost people's belief in it, show that it's here today, you know, it it doesn't necessarily Mm. make a whole lot of logical sense, like, why would I go and buy, um, I mean, the whole thing of Bitcoin as a payment mechanism, as a cross-border transaction thing, I can see it, but as a, a payment mechanism? day to day, it is very easy for me to buy stuff. Like I don't, I don't have a lot of friction buying stuff. I go online, ah. I buy stuff in like three seconds. Right? I go to the shops, I buy yeah. stuff in three. Like Bitcoin isn't going to give me a better, more effective way of doing that, right? Um, and that's why I think with with Libra, because they've identified the cross border payments, which is I think very ripe for improvement and disruption. Absolutely, that makes sense. As just a pure exchange of value payment mechanism. Uh, I mean it's not that exciting like cryptocurrency so I've
1: so I renew my question from last week what the hell is it doing at $11,000 because the very uses that people are looking at these things for it just to me it just doesn't exist I mean the other point I would make on the on the um, on the Facebook on the Libra thing is you know you made a point that you know like it's, the central bank is made up of firms like Uber and stuff like that um <clears throat> Tech is a very, to me, you know, not being an expert, funnily enough, when has it ever stopped me, (laughs) but tech is a a world that can be fairly easily disrupted. You know, you look around Asia, which is a huge market, every country has its own Uber-esque firm. I think it's Grab in Singapore and Malaysia. And it's doing huge business. So you think, well, where's the growth going to come from Uber and these tech companies when Asian nations, you know, Asian entrepreneurs, and let's face it, there's a lot of cash in Asia, you know, looking for a home. Asian entrepreneurs are coming up with their own ones. I mean, you know, Uber only lost $1.4 billion last year. I and mean, to be fair, it's not, Wait, you know, it's nearly as good as the Swiss National Bank on its Euro Swiss position. But, you know, as a central bank that's losing $1.4 billion that doesn't actually have positive cash revenue and is easily replaced, I'd, I'd be a little bit concerned about that one as well. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I think I think that concern might be overblown, right? Because let let's, let's okay. give uh, let's give a worst case scenario, right? Uber uh, overextends and all its investors decide, you know, this thing's never making money, and it, it crashes and burns and goes bankrupt, right? So they so before launch, the the Libra Association will have a hundred members, right? Yeah. So Uber Uber. Fails and disappears. It's already, it's money that the money that it committed is already sitting there in the pool. So it can't, right. I don't know, I can't imagine there's a mechanism for it to claw that back. All that happens is that the Libra Association goes from being 100 members to 99 yeah. members. Okay. And then, and then I imagine like, you know, after a few months of, of deliberation and agreement and et cetera, uh, you know, they, they find another person who wants to come and become part of that association. Right. So it's, it's like a it, like it like clearinghouse. Yeah, and then that's, and they do so like they have different firms. So they have on on the so it it is very um, tech and VC heavy the Libra Association right now, but it does have like like uh, like you know regular corporates. It's got technology firms. It's got VCs. It's got some like non-profit like an educational kind of groups. So it it does have and I assume when it gets to hundred by design it will have a diversity enough of different industries. But you know, even if even if tech has a you know, a really bad year or you know, VC mm. stop making money, but there will be enough enough people to, to share share the burden.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I, you
1: know, and that's if it gets that far. I mean, at the moment we're still talking, as you yeah. say, eleven. said last week, eleven white papers. I mean, I, I guess yeah. my other point is that <clears throat> every time I hear things like the Libra Association, I'm thinking like, you know, Bond films, and it's never the good. <laughs> it's never the good. It's never the good guys.
0: They're always called no, with, the with Association. Their, with their headquarters in Switzerland, high up in the mountain. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And lots of ways to actually sort of torture people that actually never really work out. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um <laughs> But God, um, it, interesting. So, so you asked why it's got so high even now, and, and the answer is still the same. It's still the, the whole Libra thing confers, uh, like, I mean, you can you don't necessarily have to believe it, but like a lot of people believe that confers legitimacy. It shows that yeah, yeah. the the world is moving towards the world of digital currencies, etc. Yeah. And the rest of it is. As you said, herd mentality. Um, mm-hmm. And one interesting thing on the herd mentality side, actually, which was, um, we we have a um, an article being published, which will be out published by the time this goes out, um, based on some of the comments that were made at um, the London event that we hosted earlier this year about cryptocurrencies. And I thought one of the really interesting points that got made there um, was Max and the uh, CEO of B2C2 was talking yep. about how people talked about kind of the, the quote-unquote institutionalization of crypto. But people didn't really think about what that meant, right? They talked about BlackRock being a large institution, but they didn't really understand what BlackRock is, right? He was saying you know, BlackRock and firms like this, they are basically big pools of money from retail investors, ultimately, from individuals, right? They get yep. so big because they just get so much money from so many people together. Um and so he was saying that, that basically that they're not going to come unless demand Z from the retail side, from their retail investors, saying, "Hey, we want to have access to this thing." So he was saying that the next, the wave of institutional money is actually going to come from retail demand. So it's kind of a down-up thing, right? Yeah. Um, he was saying that a lot of firms he thinks in the crypto space have have misidentified the end user, and that they were sort of trying to cater towards high-speed prop trading firms. Um and he said those firms are going to come but but they're not gonna create the market. They'll come because there's an underlying volume there. They can't drive yeah. themselves. And kind of there was some um uh, agreement from, from uh other people on the panel saying that that one of the mistakes that a lot of people made was um that they looked at kind of the the evolution of this market um and they compared the the pickup that was done by retail compared compared to the original kind of like techie people. who who were the first adopters of Bitcoin, was then going to be mimicked by institutional players, whereas it might not actually quite look like that when it finally happens.
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: I moderated that
1: session, and and, um, thankfully I had three good panelists who knew what they were talking about. Um, Because I clearly (laughs) don't when it comes to this sort of stuff, particularly the price action. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think... I, I, I totally accept you, your point, and I accepted Max's point at the time. Um, I guess for me, the significant part of it, though, is that the decision making will be made at institutional level as to where to invest, you know, buy, sell, um, and that is the crucial part because you know retail, you, you, BlackRock does not respond to you know a thousand retail punters going, well, you got to buy this, you have got to buy this um they make their own decisions so that kind of puts a, a separation between this as you say oh, as I say herd mentality which i think also as an aside makes it just highlights how easily manipulable the price is and this bitcoin's going to go through a difficult period here because you're going to have the odd institution they don't have to be huge institutions like a blackrock they could just be a medium-sized institution and they might dip in with okay we're going to stick 50 million in in crypto that will create an an outsized market move going in. Um, there's yeah. also, I think, the problem for some of these funds, you know, particularly some, you know, if someone goes in, in in big style. And that is, you know, a lot of investors look at the liquidity of the fund. How liquid is a fund going to be if it's in something like Bitcoin at the moment, because frankly, if you were trying to get out of, I reckon, I don't know, ten million dollars worth of Bitcoin at the moment, you'd probably, your slippage would be quite interesting. So it's a chicken and egg situation. You I kind of think you need the liquidity providers there first, you know, and I mean serious liquidity providers, people that are bidding and okay, I will make your price in reasonable size. <clears throat> um, you know, you will deal with me not everybody. Um and then these firms can respond to their retail to their retail investors saying, I want this. I th- I think at the moment I and and again I think it's the right message. It is coming from bottom up. But at the moment I think the the up, you know, the big funds can turn around and say, actually we're not comfortable with the market structure still. This is an ongoing debate and will be for some time. We're not comfortable with the market structure. Therefore, we recommend you go to a crypt- a dedicated crypto fund. I mean, you can see that, it may it? not work that way. I, you know, you've also got to look, I mean, you know, the counter, to argue with myself, not for the first time in my life, um, you've... You've also, there's going to come a day, I suppose, when these firms, we've spoken about this before on the podcast recently, about these firms becoming just too big to be able to man, you know, maneuver in the yeah. markets, which means they'll be looking for more and more opportunities. And at some stage, they may turn and go, actually, you know what? It might only be point oh oh one percent of our um, assets under management, but let's put something in there just so it's just something different. There was there was a paper I haven't read it properly. It was published this week, and it was talking about um, correlations between FX rates, um, the, uh, the price of gold, and crypto pricing. And the top line summary was, you know, there are correlations there. Um, they're fairly negative correlations, which actually means that crypto could become a little bit more attractive to some investors in these um, markets. I guess the problem is FX as an asset class in terms of actual investment dollars in it is not that huge compared to what it is in fixed income and equities. And that's where I think we've got to do the work. Understanding where cryptocurrencies can be a good diversification away from um, you know, equities and, and, and bonds. And yeah, the argument put forward by someone this week was look, we're losing trust in the political system in democracies That's why people are going to crypto. Personally, I think it's overthinking it 100%. I think crypto is for the, you know, to your point last week, it's about banking the unbanked. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I I don't think anyone knows yet. I certainly don't know because I can't even tell you where the bloody price is going. But there we go.
0: So let, let's move on to safer territory for you then, Colin. Which is <laughs> excellent. Um, I thought he didn't ask Lucky Max. Lucky Max, yeah. I saw he didn't two twenty six this week. Oh mate, can you feel it? So, so you're doing you're doing better on that than your uh, your, your Bitcoin predictions.
1: Absolutely,
0: it's coming. So, that's not going to hard though. Um so I saw so you did an article <laughs> on um the FCA recognizing the global code of conduct. Um is that actually significant or is that just like a, a good excuse for like a nice press release? Um,
1: I think it's significant, but it's not very significant. Um to be very significant, I think it would probably need another couple of senior regulatory bodies to recognize it. I and mean, effectively, what the FCA is saying, and they're not, not—they're not, you know, in typical regulatory fashion, they're not committed themselves to this 100%, but what they're saying is, when, fa- when faced with um, accusations or suspicions of misconduct, mm-hmm. their guidelines for how they will judge that conduct will be the FX Global Code. So, well I mean generally speaking, I mean in simplistic terms it means if you're in breach of the FX Global Code, then we are going to find a case against you. So to me it's significant because A, yeah, it is recognition by the senior regulator in the senior FX market in the world, um, that the FX global code is is something they you know they can use. Um it may also be significant. I mentioned this yesterday in my column briefly. That you know the FCA regulates the asset management industry, the investment industry. Um, it could be significant for a few firms in that space now. Thinking, hmm, hang on a minute. So my my regulator has recognised this code, which I am continuing to conveniently forget and push down my um, list of priorities. Maybe what I need to do is go in and do at least a study. Of the code. Now, um, I think the global FX committee's got its head screwed on. I think they know what to do with this. I don't need me telling them. But now is the time. This is the time to go out there now into the asset manager and say, like, right, here you go. You've got a senior regulator that thinks this is worthy, and this will be the, the framework by which they they will judge your actions in the FX market. Now is the time for you to really sit down and look at this, and you know, understand the proportionality. Not every um, principle will, will adhere to you, but make sure you adhere to these ones, sign a statement of commitment, and then, mm-hmm. you know, and then we'll go away. So it could be significant for that, but I think it does need somebody else to, um, I'd I, 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 I hesitate to use a US regulator because, frankly, I couldn't work out which US regulator it would be. There's a bit seems to be hundreds <laughs> of bloody things. Um, but you know, people like the MAS, um, the HKMA, um, you know, the East, well, who would it be? I suppose it would be the European Commission, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, as a, you know, or ESMA as the regulatory body there. Then then that would give it even more momentum. And it wouldn't surprise me if that comes at some stage. So, yeah, okay. fairly significant. Um, it's certainly not a negative for the code. Um but yeah, I I just think it, you know, it 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 should it should be a good momentum push rather than um uh, you know oh, well, wow, everybody the global code's arrived. There's still work to be done on the back of it. So yeah, I mean I, I, I highlighted a thing yesterday, I you know, sort of mentioned to you briefly two minutes in the two minutes before we started this call. Um that there was a there was a <laughs> I, mean, I call it a fantastic event because it's fantastic because you think oh, it's barely believable. But last year um a hedge fund board came up with a you know a strategy there is no offsetting on the genius switch that basically <laughs> said went to went to a US house builder, I think they're Hovnanian or something. I've never heard of them but you know, Hovnanian and said, Oh, we can refinance you at a lower rate and, oh, great, that's good. You know, save us X amount of dollars a year. Um, but in return, you've got to miss a payment on your bond. And you go, well, why have we got to do that? Well, because then you technically go into default, and there's payouts on your credit default swaps, of which we, the hedge fund, are long, a shed load. Um, so the, the company agreed to do it. They defaulted it. Well, they didn't pay the bonds. They have 30 days to pay them, and they announced they weren't going to. Um, unfortunately for the genius involved, the CDS market being OTC, um, it's pretty easy to find out who you sold the CDS to. So, funnily enough, the sellers um, dropped a lawsuit on their um, doormat, and Oof. probably, probably within a nanosecond of that lawsuit dropping, probably before it even hit the floor, they went, "Oh no, 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 let's, no, no, we won't do this. Um, let's settle this." You know, um, yeah, a code of conduct would have stopped that, and. Because and a code of conduct adopted by a regulator as guidance, which is what the FCA have done, would have said, well, the code of conduct says you can't do that. What on earth thought you could – made you think you could do that? Bang, here you go. Here's a regulatory sanction. To me, that's a very clean way of doing it. So that's hopefully how that thing will evolve. But um, we shall see. Um, it's uh, it's an ongoing challenge for the Global Effects Committee, I think, to keep you know, to keep the code's momentum. Um Moving back into tricky territory for me, um, you wrote about the investment in one zero uh, yesterday, my time, yeah. so putting today your time. Um, and, you know, it's attracting, you know, you know venture capital money, um, you know, in new investment. It seems to be part of a trend.
0: Is that fair? Yeah, so, I mean, I, like, I don't have. Uh So much more to add about the the actual kind of one zero deal specifically than is in Mm -hmm. the article. So if if people are interested, I'd I'd recommend they go and read that. Um, But yes, I do think. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, obviously the biggest example we've seen of private equity coming to SX is uh, the purchase of um, uh, Refinitiv by uh, Blackstone. from the writers turned into yeah. or whatever we're calling it these days. Um, so that's that's obviously the biggest <laughs> example. But we we have seen. You know, I think I think technically it was VC rather than than PE money. But you know, um, yeah. Integral got an infusion uh, at the back end of last year. We've seen um, Edgewater raise some private equity money in recent years. So I it, it just I, I've been hearing rumors of private equity and I've been seeing more private equity investments in the past couple of years than I feel like I've seen in, in the, the three or four preceding it to be honest with you. Um so so that does seem to be a trend. But but what I thought was interesting, one thing I tried to highlight in the article is it was interesting for me because on the one hand, I speak to a lot of people who who say it's become so much harder to money in FX, right? And these people often on the on the trading side now. Um so yeah, it's come harder. We've been in, in a period of extended, um, you know, low vol, um, low volumes, um, and and yet we're seeing private equity firms looking at this space, thinking this is an attractive space to invest in, which I think is quite interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm a bit bemused by it in some ways because yeah we've made you made the point a couple of weeks ago. I think it was that you know it's actually not the market makers that are making money or the traders are making money, it's the platforms that are providing the trading mechanisms um but if low volumes continue then those the value of those platforms is diminished as well. um I think I said it you know, a couple of months ago talking about the you knowreuter of sort of through t um, potential link up, um, which I think is still going ahead. I think it's just, there's, there's just a bit of foot dragging at the moment. Um, but I wonder if in a few years' time we'll look at these valuations and go like, what were we thinking? Because again, it's easy to disrupt, it's quite expensive. And like, uh, you know, some of these firms are disruptors, don't get me wrong. And so therefore, I see it as being, you know, that will be a smart investment. Um, but there has to be a there has to be a finite limit to how much we can trim costs out of the price of trading at the moment um you know for a i don't know a hedge fund client who's not going to go out there and machine gun the market, there's probably you know one hundredth of a point or one sorry one tenth of a point spreads if there's a spread at all a lot of time it'll be on choice pricing yeah um, so there's no real cost for them there. There might be cost in slippage, but that's called cool a market. Um, there's the brokerage cost on if they're on the platform, that can be trimmed into. There's definitely room for disruption there. Um, processing wise, yeah, there's, and I think this is what a lot of these firms are looking at. They're saying, we can make it more efficient, aren't they? Is that
0: right? Yeah. So, 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 so we yeah. talk about this in the article, which is because, because um it's been a bit of a struggle in um in fx right, recently right you basically need yeah. um one of two things right you need to, need something that's going to be able to uh reduce your costs right or something innovative that's going to let you increase your revenue yeah so i think if if you can do one of those things and when you're reducing costs obviously you know you have to be able to reduce costs by such a figure that it reduce it by so much that yeah. it's still worth the added fee that they'll now have to pay you to reduce the costs but but yeah. i think firms who can offer those efficiencies are are well placed in the current environment where everyone it feels like is trying to to rationalize their business as much as possible um and i think you know part of that was regulatory driven for a while but i think now very much yeah. it is um you know it's it's looking at when it's easy when when you know the market's trading heavily and everyone's making money but when it's not, yeah, I think yeah. you know, it's about who can what doing, you know, be smarter with how they do things and more efficient.
1: Yeah, it strikes me what they're looking at now is they've gone away from the actual trading process and now into the technology stack. Exactly. Um, let's use these third-party technology providers to you know, reduce our efficiency and reduce our cost. Um, obviously, there's an operational risk aspect to this, which at some stage they may have to put into capital, in terms of you know, what happens if that third-party provider, um, if you look back to the early years of EFX, there was one com- one one company that was pretty prominent um, that built the single-dealer platform pricing engines, you know, EFX infrastructure for two or three banks. Um, and everything was great for a couple of years. And then that third-party company stopped investing. Because, funny enough, they wanted to monetize what they were doing, um, <laughs> and that left the bank saying, "Well, hang on a minute, I've got a technology stack that's down the creek." So, there's an operational risk in terms of making sure that your provider is actually going to have the scale to deal with you um, and your competitors, because they're going to be looking for more than one um, uh, customer. Obviously, um, I think there's also a question of how how much you can squeeze out of of the stone, because um, you know, if you've got ten tech providers all saying, "Well, yeah, I can, I can improve efficiency in your process by hosting your tech stack here and hosting this part of your tech stack," that's fine. Um, but they're going to be in a competitive market as well, because if there's one thing, there's nearly as many of as banks, it's fintech firms. So yeah. the level of competition is, to me, um, an interesting aspect there. Um, these people are smarter than me. They see the opportunities, and, and it depends on their time horizon. I would say long-term, this is not necessarily a great investment, but in the short term, it could be absolutely fantastic. And if that's what they're looking at, and let's face it, Blackstone are turning around you know, the FX trading platforms of, of Thomson Reuters pretty quickly. If they are going to sell to 360 in the next few months, as we think they will, um, yeah, that's a short-term investment. They're reducing their debt. They're making good money on it. Happy days. Well done. Um, the problem for the others, if they're in it for the long term, is you know, where's the next disruptor going to come from? Is it going to be that firm, or is it going to be another one of the thousands of fintechs out there? Um, what I would say, I think it's a good idea. I think they're looking in the wrong place. I actually think they should be looking at the fixed income market because to me that's oh, really? where there's a lot of, that's where there's a lot of inefficiency still um it's a hugely complex market and i think it's not as a, it's not an an easy win the way fx is but i would say that if you're looking over a 3 to 5 year time horizon the fixed income technology space um has room for much more growth than fx so <laughs> There you go. There's another prediction. And they always go perfectly. So (laughs) we'll just wait for the collapse in fixed income investments. Uh, (laughs) Valuations of anything fixed income will be cut by about 30% in the next week. And, um, yeah. Of course. We'll go from there. (laughs) So on that note, with yet another prediction to come back and haunt me, we'll close up this week's podcast. Um, maybe you can download us from the iTunes store or off the P&L website um, thanks very much for listening we will be back next week have a good week